Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. This is one of your producers, Christiana Kimmick, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. So today, I just wanted to jump on real quickly and explain to you what you're about to hear. Today's episode is a bonus after the episode, specifically for the Loeb sisters. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you have not gotten the opportunity to listen to the Loeb sisters episode that came out this past Tuesday, do yourself a favor and go listen to it. Ashley, our host, sits down with her younger sisters, Marina and Victoria, who is affectionately known as Tori, and she unpacks their life. They all divulge on what their relationships were like growing up and how Ashley's using actually affected that. What happened in the household? What were the effects on them as younger siblings? What did they get? What did they miss out on? It, it's an incredible tell-all. You will totally see um, a new side of Ashley, which is really, really neat hearing her with her sisters. I've had the pleasure of meeting Marina and Tori multiple times and, and interacting with them and, and getting to know them over a long period of time. They're fantastic women, and we were so excited to have them on the podcast. And normally we're doing our after the episodes with two episodes reviewing at a time. This one and the episode that's coming out next week, which we will, you'll see is Ashley Joe Brewer, who is our production coordinator. So excited about that one. Both episodes are so long and there's so much to unpack that we really wanted to make sure that we represented them well. And specifically with the Loeb Sisters episode, there was so much content and so many insights that Ashley gave along the way while we were talking to her that we wanted to just make sure that we didn't have a, another three-hour episode for our after the episode. So just wanted to explain that to you and let you know what you're listening to. Enjoy. If you have questions about this episode, if you'd like to pick Ashley's brain, ask questions to Marina and Tori as well, because I'm sure they'll come up. Um, questions came up for myself. Ashley Joe Brewer was asking her as well. Um, please email us, podcast at lionrock.life, and we will get back to you because the email is working. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the Loeb Sisters bonus after the episode. Please enjoy. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. I'm I'm super proud of her too. I, I've got to say that's there's nothing like a girl that can kick some major ass. No, and I'm like she could literally beat up anybody, like anybody. And I'm like, hey, that taekwondo, all that money I put into that paid off. <laughs> <laughs> oh I love God. that. I love that. I mean, sometimes not loving circumstances surrounding it, but loving that, loving that fighting spirit, man. That's that's something to behold. 
For sure. I'll let my kids stand up for each other any day of the week, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my kids, my kids, like they reserve, they feel very protective about the right to beat each other, right? Like it's like, if anyone else tries to beat them up, that's a no go. But like, they're happy to pound the shit out of each other. It's a kid thing. Yeah. That was me and my middle sister. The baby, whenever mm-hmm. we would fight, she'd always come in crying and she'd go, guys, <laughs> just stop fighting. And then we'd look at her and we'd go like, get the hell out of here. You suck. <laughs> we push her out of the room. Oh how, how much younger was she though? She's so she's eight and a half years younger than me and okay. three yeah. years younger than the middle. Yeah. yeah. And me and the middle one would spar i mean straight up crazy spar but we had like standards which apparently you and your sisters didn't have standards (laughs) no dog no standards you're gonna gonna eat the curb baby you're gonna eat the curb (laughs) we we were no face we that was our one thing i it's because did you just did you talk about this before you fought or like like, were there rules there were rules there was like we Fuck, would you would chat. We would chat, but it was oh. like it was mm-hmm. a momentary hiatus because she had like a mega temper, and I'm very fiery. Like I can I can stay constant for like a, a while, but then I'll just like <gasps> like something will just like turn me up too, and she just goes like immediate rage. But we'd always stop and talk, and here's why: it's because we knew that like if we didn't get on the same page, even in regards to fighting that the wrath we would suffer at the hands of my mom mm, yeah. would be way worse and be like way drawn out. Yeah. So okay, we were fair. always like, Hey, we can't have evidence. So we knew if we like beat the crap out of each other and it happened neck down, you can like wear a sweatshirt, cover it up, tell a lie. I fell, you know, and face, you can't make that up. There's just no making it up. Even though that actually funny enough ended up happening with with the youngest one shannon shannon my middle and heather my youngest shannon punched heather in the face (laughs) gave her a black eye and she she told my mom that and how she believed this i have no clue because i would like if i told this kind of a lie i would have like gotten in trouble immediately like no absolutely not but apparently she told my mom she had those um like the four poster beds with like the brass knobs she told her she was practicing her cheerleading jumps and slipped and fell on her eye on one of those knobs. And she oh believed her. I was like, what? But it was that's probably a, that's because an impressive she's, fall. Yeah. But it was yeah, probably yeah, because yeah. she's the baby. Like and like, she had an eye if she did that. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, we're going to the hospital immediately. <laughs> she just oh my God. And punched her square in the eye. I was like, see, you guys didn't chat. You didn't have rules. Oh my God. Rules of engagement. Yeah, yeah, there were no rules of engagement, as you guys heard and on my pod with my sisters and me and the gilded knife. <laughs> that now that was terrifying. That I I don't know if I would have been able to handle being your sibling because yeah, the the no chat, no ability to negotiate before. Everything. No, no, yeah, there's no negotiation. There was there was only sword fights. Oh my gosh. That was uh-huh. such a great episode. Okay, so we're oh, good. we want to go into this, but we I we first have to just draw attention to how absolutely amazing Ashley's 
I don't want to say monologue. That's that's the wrong part of it. But like we we just did our kicked off our intro on March 30th for our first episode of the year, which was the season three intro. And we introduced Ashley Joe, who she's back and she's amazing. And you by now have heard her episode that got released as well. And we have to draw light to Ashley talking about ALB, our host, talking about going into treatment in the in the season three intro. And if you have not listened to that, I want to say go and listen to the second half of the season three intro. It's amazing. She talks about where she went for January, her journey, and talking about turning 15 years sober uh, while getting treatment for uh, her eating as well. And it's just, oh, I've listened to it over and over again, and it's super inspirational and so helpful. And I just want to encourage everybody to make sure to listen to that. Thanks, guys. So good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yep. And I didn't like kick Ashley out at the end of season two, if anybody ever thought that. <laughs> They're like, what? Oh. And I was like, hey, it's, breaking up. it's me again. <laughs> so Ashley Joe is again joining us for this after the episode, which is so much fun to have three people in the after the episode. Oh, man, we're just excited to be back. There's a lot of new stuff that's coming. I think we're going to hold off on talking about that, though, in regards to that. We'll give you guys a good heads up on what's coming for after the episodes and all that format coming up um, for the rest of the year. But just know that it's great content and your lovely host has been thinking about what our listeners would like, things that feed her as well, and... Ashley, Joe, and I are working to deliver on all that fun and amazing content. But for today, we'll be reviewing episode 91, which is the Loeb Sisters, which fabulous episode. I could re-listen to that constantly. This is exciting. It is. So I'll let somebody else take over talking because... Yeah. So do we want to jump right into like the first thing we wanted to talk about? Yeah. Restoring relationships. So Ash, I don't know your sisters like Christiana does. So for me, it was very interesting listening to the episode and hearing you specifically talk about your relationship with one of your sisters. You mentioned multiple times that there was a point in your life where you literally were not talking and hearing the episode I struggle with that because I'm like, you guys sound like you're, and you are amazing, great friends now. What was that process like of restoring that relationship? Long. <laughs> um, so Marina, my sister, who is two years younger than me, she is uh, the, she's a illustrator in San Francisco and she, she's the one that I used with. And so we, I think in the episode, I can't, I don't remember if we, how much, how much we detailed, but like we did everything together. Like we did all the same level of usage, like mm-hmm. to the point where I think she talks about saying, coming to me and saying, look, we have a Coke problem. Cause like yeah. we had a Coke problem <laughs> together and all the way. And then she was there the night that I, the first time I shot heroin and overdose and the whole thing, like she was there that night when basically I took, you know, a different path from her and she was there and she did not use, um, apparently it was offered to her, which I didn't know. Um, I don't know why I would think it wouldn't be, but, but so she was there. And so when our paths kind of diverged like that, I think you heard her say a couple of times, like you betrayed me. 
um, like you turn, she talks about like you turn you, your personality changed. Um, you heard her say a couple of times, like you were going to die. Like you were, she's like, you would a hundred percent have died. And so those, those were kind of the reasons like she basically was like, I basically, it wasn't just like, you know, with Tori, the youngest one, Victoria, it was like, I was five years older than her. And I went, I left home when she was 11 and I have never lived there. Like, like Norma lived there since then. So we have not, we've literally, like I was only there the first 10 years of her life and and I made it count. And, um, and where Marina and I had a very, and like, I talk about this, a complicated relationship because of that usage together, because, you know, I mean, the parties we had, the things we did together, like the, all the stuff. I mean, we, it was, it was insane. Like it was, so when I beat, and it was us against my parents or, or the world, whatever you want to call it. So when I betrayed her, part of what happened was that I had let her into this like CD underworld and it was the two of us together. And then I went off into like a deeper chamber, basically, if it's like, you know, Dante's levels of hell, circles of hell here. So like I go to a different level and I leave her on, on one of the levels and no, no one she knows or is like really hanging out with is doing the stuff we're doing. So She's in seventh grade, eighth grade, whatever. She's been, you know, snorting meth with me. She's at, you know, private Catholic school. Her friends are, you know, playing sport. Like it's not, she doesn't have the friends and the, the, this is my world. And I basically leave her in it. And so she has all this, I mean, for lack of a better word, trauma and stuff that she's been doing with me. And then I ditch her. And she can't just go back to normal life because she's been so heavily exposed to all these things. So it's like for her, it was just this. And and I turned her into the people, you know, that we were against, right? My parents. And, and so it was just this like massive betrayal. And that's because, you know, basically I, addiction took over and my personality went bye-bye. And And then the other piece to it, which she and I have talked about, and this was over the years, which was so that there was the betrayal, which started off the like not talking to each other. And the more angry she got at me, the less I wanted to deal with it. And the more risky she was because she knew all this stuff. Um, And also my boyfriend at the time who, you know, he who shall not be named uh, was abusive to her, which we didn't, I didn't know. And he had moved into the house with us because my parents were really afraid that they didn't like, I went missing so much that they knew that if they let him move in, that, um, I would come home at night. So they would know that I was alive. And he was, you know, like 15 years, my senior. And, um, and he, I guess was hurting Marina and I didn't, we didn't know. And so, you know, basically it's like, we talk about, like, we've talked about this, like, you know, horrible conflicts of interest, right? Like, do you sacrifice, you know, I don't think my parents understood that they were sacrificing my sister for me, that kind of thing. But basically what happened was like the home was not safe and she couldn't tell anyone because the stakes were so high. And even if she had, who knows what would, whether they would have listened because everybody was in so much fear. So I created this fucking hell for her and then I, and then I left effectively. Like I was, I, I didn't leave, I was taken, <laughs> but I left. And 
So I left her with all of that. And then also she was like, she's, I kept overdosing. I kept using all this stuff kept happening. And to her, she was just like, you're going to die. She's Ashley's going to die. And she would tell my parents and Tori, Ashley is going to die. Why can't you get that through your head? Why are you going to these family weeks? Ashley is going to die. And like, why don't you bury, and she, you know, Marina, very like intense. And she's like, why don't you bury her in your head? Because that's what's going to happen. And, and so she didn't come, she wouldn't, like, she went to the one family week that we talked about, but all the other ones at the other treatment centers, like she didn't come to. And like, every time I would relapse or something would happen, that would just compound that information. And also we were joking about it early. I think we were just talking about it, but like, there was a lot of stuff where it was funny, but I was incredibly violent. Um, like one of the amends that I had to make and like a living amends that I keep is that I would not lay a hand on anyone in my family. And um, which, you know, I always joke like everything I learned in AA, they also taught me in preschool. Like don't take other people's shit. Don't hit people, you know, like yep. th- don't say mean things. And, you know, and so like one of the, the big amends I made to my family was like, I would not lay a hand on them. And you know, a couple of years ago, like it, I literally almost threw up at the table. It was probably like four or five years ago because it was before the twins were born. And Marina was sitting next to me at Thanksgiving. It had been years, I mean, years since we, we had mended our relationship. We were very close at the time. And I took, she's sitting on my right and I took my right hand. My mother would kill me hearing this because it was reaching at a at a, at a table impolite. I took my hand and I reached over to grab something on the table near Marina and she flinched like hard, like I was going to hit her. And I like looked at her and she was like, I'm so sorry. I just, I don't know. That was like a physical reaction. And I was like, did you think I was going to hit you? And she was like, it's just, you know, she's like, it's just there. And I like, (laughs) talk about one of those moments where you're just like, oh my God, just like my stomach. And, you know, so when I say my relationship with Marina was very complicated, it was because I was just, I had so much rage as you can hear in a lot of those stories. Like I had so much rage and it was, you know, when you have that kind of rage, it's like not controllable. And so I would, you know, I would really hurt Marina. And yeah. And, uh, so it was like a combination of those things, right? Like just like really abusive, really shitty. And then also she was like, what are you doing? Like Ashley is going to die. She keeps relapsing, blah, 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 blah. And then also when I left, my parents came down very hard on her, which you sort of hear hints of when she's talking and like very different with Tori because Marina, they knew that Marina had been doing this stuff with me based on me going to treatment and all the things that came out from me going to treatment. And so, you know, what do you do, right? Like think about it from my parents' perspective, your oldest daughter's dying on the streets. You hire people to go get her and scoop her up and take her to another state because she's facing, you know, charges, legal trouble. She's got a broken foot. She hasn't you know, fixed in months, her hair's falling out, turned and, you know, ended up pregnant and all this stuff. Right. So like they're freaking out and they send me away. And then the other daughter has been doing it and they're afraid that she's going to turn into the oldest daughter. Right. Because how the fuck do they know what's going to happen? So they come down really hard on her when she kind of 
cleans herself up and she's like, what are you talking about? Like I, so it was really a mess. And the more I overdosed and got loaded, the worse, the less she wanted anything to do with me. So it took, I don't know, like two, three years of me being sober before she would like really visit me or spend time with me. Like she was very cautious, very cautious. And so that that was kind of how, and we were, I repair, I have repaired the relationship. You know, we've talked before, um, she and I have talked before and she was like, I, you I trust you more than anyone on the planet. Like she's told me that. And you know, the way that we did that is we, we call it a living amends. And I am a living amends to my family because I could never, there's nothing I could do on a, like no act or money or anything I could do to repair the incredible damage I caused. But I can show up every day sober. That's part of my living amends that I stay sober, that I ask for help, that I work a program, that I'm honest, that I show up for them when they need me. I will drop anything and everything to show up for them, you know, and, and so over the years, I have proven myself as a sober that I am committed to sobriety, that I'm committed to what I'm doing, and that I am back to the person that, you know, they originally knew. And so that's how we've mended it. And it took a long time. You know, Marina, everyone else, you know, my parents and Tori, I think they wanted me back so badly that they were willing to trust me or give me a chance way earlier than, you know, maybe was even uh, prudent, but Marina made me earn it. She made me earn it. And, you know, with, you know, in her, and, and I, I totally deserved that skepticism. Something that I've heard Marina talk about, you know, off air, I don't think she, I don't think she mentioned this in the episode, but she's mentioned since, you know, the three of you guys are, are so close, like you've said now, what, one of the things she was dealing with within that, besides the fear that she was going to lose you completely is that she then became the older sister. So Mm -hmm. her place in the family actually shifted. Whereas Tori's, she was still the youngest, you know, it's true. She's probably still like teenager, you know, preteen. It's, it's, that's a transition that she's going through and she hasn't really still, you know, at that point really understood what's happening with autonomy and, and with those shifts. But Marina became the older sister. And so then the wrath started coming down from your parents as like, okay, we're going to come down now on yeah. the oldest, the hardest. There's there's no buffer between then. And that was, I guess that ended up being her coping mechanism for a long time is, okay, now I have a new place in the family because she's concluded in her head, Ashley's going to die. So I'm now the oldest sister. And one of the well, and even she, even when I was even when she decided I wasn't going to die, I still wasn't around. Like I never lived at home again. So I came back for three months. I've been back home since I was. So I like left home at fifteen, basically, to live with he who shall not be named, and um, and then at sixteen I got sent away, and I haven't been home other than three months where I overdosed and I was sleeping on their couch. I haven't been home since my bedroom when I was 16, my bedroom was converted into a sitting room. Like they knew I wasn't coming home and I have not come home. So, so I, even when it was like going okay, like they took family vacations without me. Like I couldn't go. I, I, she was, you know, the big sister, but there was a piece of that too that happened, which was that then I would come home and I'm still the big sister, but she doesn't know where her place is. And so, you know, there was so much. I mean, Marina, 
you know, my heart, I remember being in like treatment center number, I don't even know what, and thinking to myself, you know, my sister went through so much trauma up to like, there was so much that went on so much gnarly shit that went on, you know, just like an example, when we were in middle school, we snuck out once, I don't know what the hell we were doing in our neighborhood. And I started talking smack to some guys in a car, like some not super high-end car in the neighborhood. And, and, um, I think I said something about that and they like, it was like three in the morning and they're chasing us around the neighborhood and we have to hide, like trying to like, and they pull out a bat and like, we've snuck out. So we don't want to get in trouble, you know, and from a child's mind, it's like, I don't want to get in trouble for sneaking out. I don't want my parents to know we snuck out. And this is my operation, right? She's my little sister. And we're hiding under cars, waiting for them to like circle. I mean, she has been through an incredible amount of stuff with me. And what happened was, I went away and got all the help and she didn't, you know, she didn't. And instead she got all of the discipline. She didn't get, you know, the, 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 um, therapy and that like, you know, and I've worked with her since then. And, you know, I, lots of things I've helped her a lot over the years in terms of getting that help. But like, you know, I remember thinking to myself, like she went through everything up and yes, up until, you know, needles and all that. But like she went through plenty, but I went away and got all the help because mine was that acute. And I think that's something for parents to pay attention to, which is like, if in a home like ours, where the the disruption was so big, you send the oldest kid or you, you send whichever kid away to get the help. Don't forget that everybody else in the house has had trauma and, needs help and particular, you know, in Marina's case, it was that, and I I think I tried to like bring this up. Um, I think it's been so long too, that we also like, it's, it's hard to go back to like the, the hard, what I heard from them was like, no, it's a good thing, blah, 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 blah. Like they don't connect really with the, the pain of it anymore the same way because it turned out really well. And that's kind of what I heard from them. And, uh, but I, I do think that like, it's important to remember that, you know, just because you aren't the one who has a needle in their arm doesn't mean that you don't need help. And my sister, I think that was a big mistake that all of us wish we could go back and do is offer her more support because she really got, in so many ways, she got left behind. I find so much hope in the fact that you're 15 years sober and you're still sitting in front of me today saying that you're still making a living amends. Because to me, being early in sobriety, you know, we just, we want this quick fix. We want to be like, we got sober and our relationships are better. And that's just not the way that it goes. It does take time. And I'm, I mean, I'm telling my kids the same thing every single day. I wish I could change the past, but I cannot. What I can do is I can show up today. I can be a mom today. I can be sober today. And I can commit to those things right now, but you can't change what happened in the past. No. And, and, you know, you'll find that you, because you're so committed to that, because you, because you did that, you're actually more impeccable with your word than most people in their lives. Like you will actually become more reliable, more trustworthy, all those things over time. I mean, you know, when, when I talk about, um, addiction and alcoholism, like, one of the things I've said is like, it's like being possessed. Like I felt possessed. I was a person who did things that I don't, woo, 
that's not who I am. I mean, you, you guys, you know, I'm, I'm telling my kids, you know, you can have all your feelings and like, I, I can't watch you know, King Kong, because it feels like animal abuse, you know, to me, even though it's not a real, you know, like, I, I, I don't, it's not who I am. And yet under, under substances, I am a different person. It is a whole other ball game, And all those niceties and kindness and compassion that I harbor do, do not come with me. And, you know, you can never, I'll never, you know, my parents, my family can say what they want, but, and, and I'm grateful that they've forgiven me, but, you know, I made our home a war zone, literally. And, um, I took everyone hostage. I was violent. I was, I was, you know, a criminal. I was held everybody emotionally hostage. It was, it was, you know, there was a lot and like with my sisters, you know, we, we laughed about so much fun stuff because there was, there was a lot of fun, right? Like it didn't, it wasn't always bad. Like there was, you know, it escalated over time. And I think you, in the, in our podcast, you kind of hear that when they're like, and then you kind of like really started to disappear. And I think that's kind of where you hear that, like it went from funny to not so funny. But I think that, you know, I took away something from them, like a, a period of time in their life. Like I, I took a lot away. And so in order to make up for that, like I have, I give a lot back and I, I at least I try. And, and that for them, they, you know, for in my family, and I, I know this isn't the case with everybody. My family wanted me back so badly. They wanted me to be well so badly that like, they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like it's, you know, like that was then, you know, and, and, and I, it's up to me in this particular case with my particular family to honor that living amends because I think that they would let me off the hook. And I, I don't think that that's, I think that that's like, I think it's important that I don't let myself off the hook in the sense of, I don't let the living amends thing be off the hook. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Like, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm not sitting in shame and guilt and blah, 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 blah. But like that living amends, continues regardless of how off the hook they want to let me. Well, it's a, it's a slippery slope of understanding addiction and a lot and being like, Oh, well, she slipped up. It's just her illness. And that's a slippery slope because that's where if we let ourselves off the hook, then, and other people are forgiving in our lives, we can wind up in a really bad place. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. I want to interrupt this episode to have a short little discussion about support groups. And there is no better person to talk to about this than my production coordinator, Ashley Joe Brewer, AJB, if you will. AJB, hi. Hi. Okay. You're a big fan of community. You attend community support group meetings. Give why? Why why should people care? I absolutely love community because it creates a community. And I know that sounds funny, but it truly provides a space for anyone and everyone, no matter what they are going through. Just to give you an example, I invited or told a friend about community because she was really struggling with binge eating disorder and had gone to many different groups and felt shunned or not accepted or like it wasn't a place for her. And at community, she found a place because in community meetings, it's we don't care what the substance is or what the struggle is. 
everyone is accepted, no matter where they are in life, no matter what they are recovering from. And I think that's what's beautiful about community. Oh, I love it. And I, I, yes, I 100% agree with you that the value is that you don't have to know what your problem is, what your struggle is, what you want to give up or not give up, or whether you're abstinent or whether you're stopping one, whatever, whatever it is, you are welcome and you're welcome in this place. And it's a great place to discover the answers to all the questions that you're looking for in a community and have that support. And it's free to anyone. You go to lionrock.life. And there is a tab with community meetings. There are different days, different times, different subjects. There's even a cooking group called Community Table. There are so many different options, something out there for everyone. So I highly recommend, maybe after you listen to this, if you are looking for more community in your life, more friends, more support, please, please go check out community, lionrock.life. Click that community tab. Well, it's also why, you know, when I, I think it, I've talked about it a couple of times, which is when I went and asked for help and got treatment in January, why my family was so affected by it. Because, you know, that, that you know, I, I think I described like talking to my dad about needing this help in the room where I overdosed when I was 17 and like, sitting there on the couch with him on the same couch that, or, you know, whatever. I don't know if it's the same couch, but the same theoretical couch. Yeah. Area. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and you know, that experience, I changed them, you know, it changed them. And so there's a, there's a real fear of like, of that person not coming back. And so part of my responsibility, part of my living amends is to ask for help before it's too late, (laughs) right? So like, that's kind of what I said to them too. I was like, look, you know, I know this is really scary for you. I know this is really upsetting. I'm upset. I I didn't want this, but this isn't a tragedy of me asking for help because I'm asking for help before anything bad is happening. And that's my commitment to you. My commitment to you is that I will get help if I need help in order to maintain you know, my true self in order to stay clean and sober and that I'll do that. And so this is actually a positive thing as difficult as it is for all of us. And as scary as it is, this is a good thing. This is a good outcome, right? Is that I ask for help because my commitment to you all was that I was going to do everything in my power to stay clean and sober and and live that immense. Yeah. Which is amazing. And and which is why it's so important that people listen to what you were talking about in the season three intro with in regards to going to treatment and, and why why that was so impactful, like you were just saying, to your family. Now is one of the things that I was wondering because we didn't really expound or didn't really expound upon it a lot in the Loeb Sisters episode was at that time that you were talking about with Marina. Was Tori really affected or did, did she, she didn't really seem, she seemed like she was affected, but it was almost like it was very removed for her because she had said she, even if she'd show up at parties that she would just watch, like she was like excited to be with you guys, but she was just kind of like, eh, like didn't want to yeah, so, be part of it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So like what watching meant was that's kind of, that's the detail that, that matters, right? Like she would come home and we would 
have had like an orgy in the house and she, I would be tied up naked somewhere and she'd come home and untie me and be like, what are you doing? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So right. So like when she, or like, (laughs) yeah. Or like, like these, I mean, that was kind of what would happen with the two articles. People would show up with two white socks on and that's it. Like to our, our blacklight parties and we'd all be drinking and using. Right. So like what she was watching was way you know, NC-17 or whatever they call it. Um, Maybe even worse. So like not age appropriate. I don't even know if that's appropriate for anyone, um, but definitely not when you're young like that. And like the photo books I had or like I had these ornate, I still have them. My husband hates them. Uh, Every time we find him, he's like, can't we throw these away? I'm like, no, those are family heirlooms. Um, But they like ornate photos of us using and partying and, you know, whatever, like all this stuff. And again, like, I think I, in, I did not hide what I was doing. And that's also why I, I, they, I got sent away so early. Cause I'm, I'm, I, you know, people talk about like, I'm the worst liar. I am the worst liar. And I knew that. So I would just not, I did, I went the other direction. I was like, no, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing, that's, that's, which was actually slightly genius because no one knew what to do with that. Right. Right. Like, didn't you say your mom found meth and then was like, you My mom like, found yeah, meth. I found meth. <laughs> She's, she finds this like pile of meth on a dictionary. I'm like, we had those big blacks dictionary, like the big one hardcover. And she brings it out and she's like, what is this? And I was like, that's methamphetamine, you know? And like, then I was like, your move, mom, you know? Right. Like, what are you going to say? Yeah. So she dumps it and I'm like, okay. And then I said to her, I was like, I was experimenting with meth. You know, and she's just looking at me like, I, uh, fuck, you know? So I, I, it was a very complicated situation. And in terms of what Tori saw, I think Tori saw a lot of things that she hopefully didn't understand. She saw a lot of things that, you know, she grew, she had to grow up really fast and figure out, you know, she, you know, she's peeing and like, did it scar her to pee in a cup for me? No, but like, or go steal money from me. I don't, you know, I don't know, but like, that's not what happened was that she didn't have a normal childhood, like, and how it was described, how they described it as like constant screaming in the house. You know, basically I was losing it all the time and my parents were losing it all the time. So like, yeah, she, in her mind, I think she doesn't, it didn't affect her maybe the way that it would have everybody, you know, I think it, people are affected differently, but it definitely had an effect on her. It definitely, I mean, she definitely was exposed. I mean, I know, I know that when she was, I know that someone put cocaine on her gums when she was like eight, you know, like I know that, you know, I, it was not good. It was not good. So I, I, I don't think that she paints it in that, like, again, I think it's very, when we look back at the whole situation because it ended okay. And because we've all, all three of us have done a ton of work, emotional therapeutic work on it. I think it's hard to be like, oh, I had this horrendous child. You know, I don't think we, I don't think any of us wallow in that, but yeah, I mean, she definitely, she was coming to these lockdown centers where I was to do family groups, seeing me in not good situations. She, you know, was there when I, she was, she, you know, came to the hospital when I overdosed and, and they had a guard at my door and they were watching me and, and, and wondering if I was going to make it through the night. You know, she 
had a front row seat. So, you know, I'm glad that she doesn't wallow in the <laughs> in the trauma of what she went through, but there's no question that it was trauma. I mean, she wasn't allowed at people's houses. Like, it was a different trauma She I didn't use with her. That actually makes a lot more sense with why people wouldn't want to kind of, like, if they knew that, like, those types of parties and stuff were going on. Oh, they on. didn't know that, though. Oh, they didn't. No, that's they knew, That's what I'm saying. Like, that's the amazing part is it, people didn't know that stuff. No, they knew they knew much milder things were happening, and that's mm-hmm. what they were reacting to. They had... Wow. Up. We did not do any of that stuff with people our age or in any of our social groups. So the people that were... I mean, we met people on AOL chat rooms that we well i am (laughs) yep throwing it back throwing it back yeah like chat rooms that like no one would ever know if that we met up with them ever like it was and i mean completely anonymous you know like it was not people didn't know what they knew was like the things that would show they knew that i looked like i was 20 that you know that the way i dressed they knew that you know, I was in trouble. They knew that I had mono for a few months. They knew, you know, they knew they could see there were things I was, you know, I dyed my hair. There were like, there were, there were enough things that were like, yeah, that girl, you know, I hit puberty so young. Like there, there, there were enough things that freaked people out. They didn't know even the half of it, but maybe that's part of why they, you know, I, I, it's, I, I feel terrible that that happened to my sisters, but I don't blame the parents like for having that reaction because I would have that reaction. Like you got to protect your kids, right? I, like that's, that's your job. So I have that think, reaction with my 14 year old over way less, way less right. than what well, you're that was describing. I mean. That's what I mean. Like way less than, that's what I mean. I don't think people had any idea, but they didn't, I mean, they didn't need more than what they were seeing. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. So much to unpack there. I, I, I don't even have anything to compare it to, right? Like that I've, wh- not that I have to, but it's just like, it is, it's so far from so many people's reality, I guess, just growing up in that sense and and, and the things that like, you know, kids can be exposed to, but like, man, that's young. That's so well, young. I mean, so much to walk through. I know. I, I look at the photos. I'm like, oh my God, we're so young. But the thing like we didn't have any, we had very limited technology. We had very limited, like the, it was much harder to do a lot of the things that we were doing and to get rides and to like make calls and, and we managed to do it. So the thing that freaks me out, not to scare the shit out of everyone on here, but like the thing, the thing that freaks me out is like, it is a whole different ballgame. Like this stuff, it took real, real like grit and effort to do the things that we were doing. Like I was committed to the cause. You do not have to be that committed to end up at doing the things that we were doing now. You just don't like, it's not that hard. You can, you can log on somewhere and get drugs easily. I had to walk three miles and like hide out and like do all this stuff. I had to like find cash. There's no Venmo. There's no, you know, it's, it, it was a whole, like, it was a whole different, we didn't get cell phones. So like I had a pager that I paid for that, you know, whatever, like it was just a whole different thing. And so the thing that scares me, cause people are always like, Oh, you'll be prepared. I'm like, no, you don't understand. This was 
we were using drugs that you know of <laughs> that, you know, like, right. And, and weed at the time was not what it is today. It was, it was just a whole other ball game. And now it's light speed, light years rather uh, ahead of what I was doing. Right. And think about that for a second, light years ahead. They're using drugs. I don't know about, I don't even know where drugs they they're, they're using platforms that are hidden in, in iPhones, there you you know there it's 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 well beyond what i know and so what i think is like i always think to myself like you could get to where i got so much faster and be so and be half as motivated to get there dang mhm that's, that's what scares me that's really scary yeah and and, and like i think you'd even talked to me about this at one point like drugs back then weren't laced with fentanyl you know no you no 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 yeah you like were that. no you were not going to die I mean, you really had to screw things up if you died doing cocaine once. Like that was just not in, you know, it was like, I mean, if you had a heart attack from doing cocaine once, like maybe you were in Colombia, but not in the Bay Area. Okay. Right. Right. That wasn't like the things you were going to get hurt from were like being in bad neighborhoods, picking up drugs or like, and, and most of the time when that happened to me, I got ripped off. I didn't, people didn't hurt me. So it's so, it's so above and beyond that. I mean, I talked to my, I, my sisters, I talked to them about that. I have for years. I'm like, you know, this stuff is laced with stuff that will kill you with a speck. That's a different world. That's a different ball game. That, you know, that is a whole other thing. Like I didn't, you know, we weren't worried about that. I wasn't afraid of that. I mean, I used to, I, we would go to Mexico and get like these pills and we'd fill them into these plastic jewelry box you know those jewelry those plastic flat jewelry box things that you open yes. right you put beads caboodle, caboodle, uh-huh. whatever yeah. Yeah. yeah so we would take those to mexico and we would put fill pills in them and then we literally take a fucking handful of pills and like you know see what happens and you would never like even me i would never do that now because I mean, how many of those are going to be have fentanyl in them? And how much do you need of fentanyl? Back then, it was like, it was probably going to not be a real thing. It was going to be a sugar pill. It was going to be not real. You would have paid for crap. You know, you, you're going to get diarrhea because it was a laxative or whatever. It, you know, people, it was just different. You know, yes. Could you have overdosed? Yes. So I'm not downplaying. I'm just saying like it was, we did not, I did not feel like people were trying to kill us. I felt like people wanted us to be addicted to pay them regularly. And I feel like that has changed. Mm-hmm. That's completely shifted now. Oh God, that's terrifying. And that's why you're hearing kids. I mean, nowadays there's so many. Oh my gosh. They're like trying, just... trying it one time, literally, literally like, like the stories they told us in dare, you know, like they're literally trying it. These kids, these, you know, the story of like two jock brothers who took an oxy one night and it was laced with fentanyl. Boom. They're dead. And they had they had never done drugs before, and they someone had told I mean stuff like that that scares me because i was I was such an outlier, you guys like i i was i don't know what I was on a mission <laughs> I was on a mission, I really was I really was on a mission, I was self destructo so it's i i just i i don't i, I it's, it's not the same anymore. 
Well, thanks for terrifying me with the 14-year-old. Sorry, Christiana, who's about to have a baby. I know, We're sitting I'm here like, like no big deal. Sorry. It's I know, fine. I'm just going to, you know, move to the Shit. beach, dig Sorry, a hole, guys. and, you know, raise her there. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Imagine how I feel. Imagine And think about it. My sisters are like, I wouldn't wish a child like you on anyone. Like, literally, that's how fucking bad it was. And I'm looking at my kids going, oh, dear God, please, please. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Like, I'll take it all back. Wait, wait. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, it's so scary. But yeah. So going with kind of like things being scary and then also discussing social situations and how recovery fits in right nowadays. There's so many people who have the mentality of how recovery is like a one size fits all approach. Ashley I now I have to say ALB because we've got AJB, we've got ALB. <laughs> ALB, you do such a great job with this podcast on making sure that we are representing all different paths to recovery, all different types of recovery, and giving people the space to talk about that because it truly isn't one size fits all, which is what I thought before I started getting any kind of education whatsoever on sub- substance use disorders. And Tori mentioned, you know, people having this impression that you go to rehab and boom, you're fixed. That was actually something that I thought too. I thought, oh yeah, 30 days. That sounds like a long time. You know, and I I thought that, I thought, right? I know, so stupid. But I thought that like... It's not so stupid. It's not. You're totally right to think that. I mean... And you think it sometimes when you're going into it too. Oh, yeah. You think it when you're like 30 days and I'm going to be Because you'd you'd like that to be the case. that to be the case. Exactly. I think when people would say they were sober, I would tell them like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Congratulations. And I thought I always likened it to a marathon where... Full disclosure, I am not a runner. You lost all your toenails? Oh, my God. Or like you're like crapping yourself because it's really hard, you know? Yeah, that's... I mean, I've seen the the pictures of these poor people actually crapping themselves. But it's like really hard. And it's something that like I'm never going to try and do because like I'm the worst runner on the face of the earth. It's very... You don't... Dancers are not runners. It just just doesn't happen. Like weirdly, we look like little fairies, like running just like with our tippy tippy toes and instead of striking heel first. Anyways, it's it's very unattractive. But like a marathon's difficult. There's a lot of training. There's a lot that goes into it. Not everybody does it. Not everybody can do it or has the grit and determination to do it. But that there's an end. Like you, you cross the marathon, right? And unless you're going to train for another one, like... It's done. And that's what I thought about sobriety. And that's definitely not the case. It is, Tori mentioned a couple different things that kind of go along with that. You know, people have the impression that you go to rehab and you're fixed. But then also, Tori mentions saying, she mentions a few times being like sad for you in how hard you have to work in everything in life, right? Everything takes more effort. And I know that sounds like, that, no, no, I'm, can, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm it's just funny. <laughs> but it was sweet hearing her say it as your sister, because like, I can, I can empathize with the sentiment of a sister and with the sentiment of yeah. wanting, wanting, you just love your sister so much. You just want everything to be good and easy and you want them to have like a carefree, yeah. kind of like free spirited yeah. life. And she's, I, I heard her come from kind of that aspect of it. And how really every single feeling, every thought, it really has to be run through this like filter, this fine tooth comb. You can't just gloss things over. 
you have to wake up every day and make certain decisions that other people don't have to or probably should be and don't because they they're not going to die. I mean, and I don't have Yeah, I mean, I don't have to either, right? Like I don't have to do it either, but the I I don't like the alternative. And like so that's an important piece to remember is like I've opted into this. It's not forced upon me. I could die and, you know, live die the alcoholic death and that that is my choice. I do have that choice. I I've chosen not to do that and I've chosen the more difficult path. And my aunt who died she made a choice too. She didn't want to do that. She didn't want to wake up fighting every day. And I don't blame her. It's hard. And she was like, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to do these things and the consequences are going to be what they're going to be. And so I do like, it is a choice. You do choose, you do opt into it every day. And yeah, it's hard to watch anyone struggle or feel difficult feelings, you know, but I think you know, it's hard for me to watch her struggle with things she's going through, right? Like it's hard. I think the part that's scary and sad is that when I say, you know, I'm having a hard time, that could mean that that could be a, a, a path to fatality. And I, when someone else says it, who doesn't struggle with that, it just means they're having a hard time and they're probably going to come through it. So there's a thought in the back of their head that every time I struggle, there's an urgency that I have that other people don't have to to get back to baseline. And I think that is scary and difficult to watch and and to watch me have, you know, watch me, you know, struggle with depression or thing or the things that I've been through. And but I also I, I think it, again, I don't have typically, typically, I don't have abnormal problems. I have abnormal reactions to problems, right? Like the stakes are just different. It's not that, you know, it's not that other people don't struggle with food or they don't struggle with, you know, needing relief or depression or anxiety or what have you. They do, they do. They, bad things happen in their life, you know, whatever. Their reactions tend not to be fatal. And that's the difference. And like with the going to treatment for 30 days, the way that people should think about it is, Addiction is a chronic relapsing disease, right? It, 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 the, we can use the disease term because it meets the criteria of progressive, fatal, and chronic. And that's, those are the, the criteria for, for disease. And if you think about it from the perspective of someone who's diabetic, which also meets the criteria for disease, if you put them in a treatment center for 30 days and diabetes and addiction, have a lot in common. They have the similar relapsing rates. It's very interesting. If you if you look closely at it, they have a lot in common, right? It's it's very contingent upon what you put in your body, maintenance, that kind of thing. And it, it tends to be people, you know, wanting fast relief. You put someone who's struggling, who's in, you know, diabetic distress, and you put them into treatment for 30 days, are they fixed? No. They're fixed contingent upon the change right? It's the same thing. It's just that in our heads, addiction's so weird because it, 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 it's, it doesn't make sense that a person could not, not drink, right? But when you understand the brain science, which is that, that the, the part of your brain that controls survival, like breathing function that tells your brain, you know, your autonomic functions that tells your brain to breathe, uh, your brain to breathe, your tells <laughs> that tells your your lungs to breathe. You know, all all those sleep, poop, sex, whatever, all that stuff, all those autonomic functions and needs. Addiction attacks those, and so what it does is it creates 
a, a, a true belief system that without the substance, you're going to die. So it is akin to saying, don't, t- don't breathe. That's what your brain thinks is happening. So you want to take a deep breath, but your, your brain, your, your brain is saying, take a deep breath, right? Which is the alcohol in this case or the drugs. And the people in recovery and the people you're trying to get well are saying, don't breathe. That's not real. You're not going to die if you don't breathe, right? Because you are untangling the addiction from the survival part of your brain. That's why it's so complicated. And it doesn't make sense because you can just not pick something up. I can just not pick up whatever, but that's not how it works when it comes to the brain changes, the neurological function that we are dealing with. So again, very confusing and makes sense why people would think 30 days would fix it. But again, I say, think about someone with diabetes. They're in diabetic distress. Will 30 days fix them? No. Well, and I think the progressive factor is really confusing too for people who are struggling with it. Because for me, I always wanted to tell myself, I used to be able to drink like a normal person. Like that may have not been somebody else's narrative, but it was mine. And so I just kept thinking in my head, I can go back to that because that is who I used to be. But because of the progression, that's not something that was my reality. So the fire, you know, things that fire, things that fire together, wire together is a, is a, you know, uh, saying in neuroscience and, and that basically is what we can attribute to the progression, right? Which is that as it gets more desperate, as it gets more intense, your brain is actually rewiring. So the person that you were when you were drinking normally, the brain wiring that you had then does not exist anymore. You now have new wiring, right? I mean, and wiring is everything. Wiring is absolutely everything. It's going to, you know, wiring is, is what your interests are, what you, where you're going to focus, like, you know, what your needs are, what you, whether you're hungry. I mean, there's, there's sexual attraction, everything. So you no longer have the same wiring, but that of course doesn't make sense in our heads as we're trying to get back to that other person. Why can't we get back to that other person? But you're just continuing to wire for more significant, intense usage. And it's progressive. And it is it is progressive. And what's weird, and I don't I, I should do more research around this. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've really gotten into the neuroscience piece, which I love. But it's also progressive when you're not using which that part I don't totally remember why, but I can tell you it's real, which is that people who, even people who have extended lengths of sobriety 15 years, say if I went back, I would quickly end up where I was, where I'd left off. You know, and there's a common saying like, while you're sober, your addiction is doing push-ups in, you know, in the background or whatever. And I don't really know, I don't really remember what the what the research talks about with that, but that is, um, that is something I've seen that people die very quickly when they go back out because they pick up where they left off, even though they had been sober decades. The progression is something that, you know, in, in some of the people that I've known who've been, you know, using or drinking, I think that's the thing that, that really alerted me the most to how terrifying and how real this is and how there really is a a genetic component to it. And, and, um, you know, because it's, it's like, it is hard to understand because addiction is such an intangible. Whereas like diabetes, you know, you can see, I, I've had a friend with diabetes and 
you're you're monitoring your blood sugar. You know, you've got all these readings that are coming through. You're pricking your finger. You have to check your but blood they're, pressure. They're all based on whether or not you eat well and exercise. Exactly. Exactly. And and, and so you could do that with alcohol. Like you could do that with drugs. You could take your, you could manage your, you know, blood sugar by what you put into your body with drugs and alcohol. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be shades of gray different, but not that different. Right. And with diabetes, because there's definitely progression with that disease as well that you can track, but definitely with a substance use disorder, if you keep your eyes open for long enough, it is very, you watch it compound and it is very, very, it's terrifying. It's evident. And that's probably my number one, like, not that like I should be going around, I'm not diagnosing people at all, but when I'm watching out for I'm sure they'd love that, you know, I do get asked if I'm out every once in a while, someone will come up and be like, do I have a problem? And I'm like, I I don't know. Do you? <laughs> I can't. I can't tell you. Does alcohol um, cause you problems? Does I know, and that's what I say now. I go. Does alcohol cause you problems? Then you either do or you don't. But when I'm watching out for someone, like if I'm if I'm concerned and feel like I need to, you know, speak up and say something if it gets to that point, that is the the number one thing that I can always see so clearly where it's it's that progressive aspect mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. and it's fatal terrifying it mm-hmm. is terrifying to watch but i think you could see it from the outside just like i think ashley's sisters could see it from the outside but when you're the person you don't see it you don't i remember the first time i think i've talked about that i remember the first time that my the he who shall not be named um he like i want to punch uh, that guy that asshole. He, uh, he was like, he, he told me I couldn't quit using cocaine. Like he was like, you're addicted. You can't, you know, uh, tends to be a theme apparently. Um, and, and I was like, yes, I can. And I remember trying and not being able to, and being so surprised. M- meanwhile, everyone's saying this, I'm doing an eight ball a day. Like everything about the situation was obvious. And in my head somewhere I knew I, I like I know I knew because I was I how could how could I not I was doing it all day long it was I mean I I I knew but I didn't know I knew it was a problem but I didn't know I couldn't stop that was the part that was interesting like I knew I was doing too much and I knew it was like you know oh this is not normal but I didn't know I couldn't stop which is also strange I just thought I didn't want to stop and you know I remember being very surprised like you you it definitely the mind games that we play on ourselves were definitely the last, you know, when people, there was, uh, I remember people used to talk about this, like when people come into AA and like, or 12 step or any treatment or whatever. And they're like, I, I don't want anybody to know. And like, I, you know, full anonymity and like, I can't have anyone know. And the joke is you're, we're always the last to know. Everybody else knows. Like we're not, we're not good at hiding it. We're the last people everyone knows, but we're so worried about the anonymity and people not knowing, you know, and of course there are people out there where they don't, you know, that's not the case, but for, for a large majority of us, it's funny because it's like, dude, everybody except you know that you have a problem. <laughs> Everyone's so. like, you, by the way, you yeah. suck at hiding it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They See how your dog. hiding place was... Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The front yeah. closet. Yeah. Maybe it's the three DUIs you got that gave it away. I don't know. Just guessing. Or also maybe when you were talking and you were slurring, you know, yeah. it, it just. Yeah. It's just but know, people are so worried about it, right? We're, we're thinking you're the last to know. <laughs> that is that. <laughs> that's it. I'm glad we can laugh about that. I can laugh because you're sitting here and you're alive today. It's literally just going through and recounting this. I mean, I've, I had moments when we first started the podcast and when I first started hearing Ashley's story where I would just like touch her arm. (laughs) I'm standing next to her, sitting next to her and I'd have like tears in my eyes and I'd like touch her arm and be like, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad you're alive. It was like hearing this broke my heart and it breaks my heart all over again. But you know, this time I don't have to like... (laughs) The therapy to handle it. It's, <laughs> I know, it's I was like, so hard to hear people suffer. Oh my gosh. So one of the things I loved about the episode was hearing your sisters talk about how today you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And you're doing that because of your story. So let's talk about that a little <laughs> bit, like taking your shit and turning it into something for good. Oh, you guys, I can't even tell you, like, some days I hate that. I'm like, I want to be something so far away from any of this stuff sometimes. Like, I don't want, you know, I mean, I want to, I was going to go to law school. I worked at the public defender's office. I, you know, studied poli-sci public policy at UCLA and was like, I am never going fucking near that topic. Like, I don't want to like I've been, this has been, oh God, I am like, I get tired of it, you know, and I get oversaturated. And, and then, you know, when we started working on Lion Rock, like I was like, well, I'll help you guys with Peter and Ian, but like, I'm not going to sign on. And then it took me a bit to like, I was doing two different jobs. And then I started, you know, working with Lion Rock and like, I'm so it's, it's such a knowledge base and it's such a, like, it's so intuitive and all those things. And so that's kind of how it fell into place. It didn't feel like work for a lot of it, but I have to say that it can be, I I do struggle with, with feeling like, you know, my, I mean, I laugh about it and, and it is, it's, it is great. And I'm, I, I'm, I get to help a lot of people. I have helped a lot of people that feels really good, feels really good to, you know, have done what we've done with Lion Rock and the podcast and all that, no no question. But if I'm being honest, sometimes I'm like, man, am I just known for like, did I just take, did I take the easy way out? Did I take the easy way out by just like relying on this experience that I had instead of using my intellect to go do other things? And, and the truth is for me that I followed my heart and my intuition and what I thought was enjoyable and what I cared about. And that I am terrible at making myself do things I don't want to do. Terrible. Like worst quality of Ashley. Just so terrible at it. And so when it came to like trying to force myself to go to law school or trying to um, force, you know, look at other like more corporate careers and things like that. I just couldn't do it. Like I literally could not get myself to do it. And, you know, there were many years where my husband was super pissed about me, what I would, you know, making like a thousand dollars a month doing Lion Rock with, you know, my seriously, <laughs> I'm not serious, like years, years doing this, making no money 
And my husband was like, are you kidding me? Like you went to school for all this time. You know, we were together when I was in college and you've done all this stuff. And like, so I just have followed my gut and my intuition. And I truly believe that whatever I'm meant to be doing has kind of worked its way into where I need to be. Like me, I always joke, like, you know, my position deals with HR, which is hilarious. And because if you know me, that's just funny. HR Um, is like how to behave. Yeah. Like HR is how how to to behave. behave. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, I'm like how to not behave 101. Um, and literally like, I'm like, okay, I won't talk about this on the podcast. Next thing I know I'm talking about, I'm like, well, (laughs) there we go. That's just happened so, so many times. So many times. I can't help myself. It's just like not, you know? And so, but like my talent for recruiting and get and, and seeing people, you know, that came, that came naturally. Like that came, it, I was working on marketing and doing different stuff in admissions, getting people in. And then I was hiring all the therapists because I knew what a good therapist looked like. And I created a system for hiring that made sense to me, but turns out no one else in the industry does. And so it was like a, people were thinking, you know, people were thinking like, oh, this is like a really intense blah, blah, blah. But I just did it because I didn't know any better. I didn't know what the industry standard were. So I created my own. And so these are the way that things have fallen into place and created systems and created this career. And so I, I, I know that, you know, I'm where I'm meant to be and I'm doing what I'm meant to be. And I also have confidence and belief that I really, like, if I really want to go in any direction that I will find a place where I can be helpful to other people. And that that's just what I do know that I was put on the planet to help other people. I get that. I see that. The question is in what capacity? Well, and it's so evident, you know, we get, we, we, when the email is working, we, (laughs) which it is uh, podcast at Lion Rock That Life. It is working. We have confirmed. There's two confirmations that it's working. So I'm just letting you guys know it's working. We, and I was looking back on the archives before the email went down of people who had written in, you know, and, and just thanked Ash for her story, for her authenticity. And, and I think that's, that's really the thing if I could, you know, say like, it's like, there's so many things you've done to help people getting them into treatment, you know, starting this business, you know, just being there to talk to them, advising them, advising family members. I joke about Venmoing you for counseling sessions that, you know, are impromptu because they always are, which is so helpful. But I think that the theme I see it circle back to every single time and thank you recovery is the authenticity. You know, I was really, I, I've always thought I was authentic. And <laughs> really, I mean, you remember me when I first came here. And you were authentic my, as you knew how to be. My authenticity was challenged to the core, though. It really was. And I learned so much more about it, where I think my heart, like I was authentic, as authentic as I could be. Yeah, you were. But I had so many layers like over that and so many ways that I covered that up and, you know, would kind of hide behind veils of different things or, 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 you know, completely go away. Like my, my real kind of personality would go away. And so that's one of the huge things that's helped me so much and that you've helped me with is just learning to like be vulnerable and be f- like fearless in that and what that's like and how to walk that out. And it's literally just by you 
living your recovery. You know, it's like we we always talk about like we need to be careful to not put people on pedestals. That was always one a huge thing for me is like people aren't perfect. Don't put them on pedestals. But but you can identify behaviors and things that people have accomplished and where they've got where they've like come what they've come through and what they've come to, right? And and that's something I so admire about you is you are just living your recovery so out loud. And when people just get a chance to be around you, it it just it's they're learning by watching you. They're learning by watching that. And I've been that or I've been affected so, you know, greatly by that. And there's so many people that have, you know, listened and written in pre email. <laughs> who, who say the same thing. And I know Ashley Joe has said the same thing and now she's here. I know. And that's crazy because I shared with Ashley during the interview process that I remember meeting her in a meeting before I had ever even listened to the podcast and your authenticity came through so much. And you do, I think, I think one of your sisters said it in the episode, you're good at making people feel comfortable being vulnerable with you. And I remember at the end of the meeting, I stayed on for like two minutes just to ask you a few questions about recovery. And after that meeting, I left and I called one of my friends and I had kind of been in a place with my recovery where it was like, I don't know. They say like, find people who have what you want and just do what they do. And I'm not finding those people. And I remember meeting you before I ever knew you were you and calling a friend and saying, I finally met someone who has what I want, who I, so this is the place I need to be. I never saw you in a meeting again after that, but I kept coming back. You know what I mean? Like I kept coming back because you gave me that piece of what I needed to feel comfortable being vulnerable. You were so authentic where I was like 15 years. I want that. So I'm just going to keep going because she was here once. I don't know if I'll see her again because it's a Zoom thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm beyond grateful for that as well. Thank you. I'm like truly humbled by your feedback and, and, you know, I, you know, I've been, I've been doing this a long time now. And I think that's part of it too, is like, you know, the reason I share about going to treatment or any of these things is like, I want people to know that I don't have it down. Like I'm still doing it and I'm happy to share with people what I've learned, but it's what I've learned through mostly experience, either seeing it or, or (laughs) experiencing it, which I'm trying to let, I'm trying to like learn from others, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, you know, and I, I I always say like, I I went to, I I started, I went to my first therapy session when I was seven and I uh, was in treatment for, you know, the better part, like give or take maybe minus three, four months of two years every single day in therapeutic communities and in different treatment centers and different levels of care. So I think that at a young age. So I think a lot of it was just like caked into my, my development into a person. And so, um, you know, I'm grateful that that's helpful to people and that, that, that is, you know, that it's important to, it's important for struggle to mean something, right? Like it's important for shitty things to mean something. And that's the cool thing about recovery, which is like, we're taught to give back and we're taught how to participate in other people's recovery and this kind of thing. And so whenever I go through something really hard for me, you know, I know that at some point that's going to be a point of strength that I can share for other people. 
you know, and that, you know, the going, getting help for eating disorder, that kind of thing. And that's not, that will some, at some point or now or whatever, be a point that, that will be, will be an asset, right? A liability becomes an asset. And we're taught how to do that in recovery. We're taught how to use our, our liabilities as assets. And, and that's a, that's a really cool gift, right? That's a really cool skill. It's a skill because we all can do it. We all can do it. We all can take our liabilities, work on them, and then share with other people what we did. Yeah, that's so good. Well, thank you, Ash, for being so vulnerable and going on this podcast, first of all. And uh, thanks for letting us use your picture. Pulled all those up. (laughs) (laughs) I should actually show that. If everybody doesn't know, we had to redesign. I think I designed 40 cover images. At the last minute, because I, w- I wouldn't let them use my photo. Let's use her photo. So we're so thankful because it makes sense. It totally makes sense. But thanks for doing, you know, this podcast and this podcast with your sisters is so informative. If if anybody kind of wants to put the pieces of Ashley's story together, there's uh, season one, episode one, Ashley's full story that she shares, you know, to kick off the entire podcast. Season one, episode eight, which is a special episode with her father, Peter Loeb, and he shares from his perspective as well. Season one, episode 15, Dak and Ashley, Ashley's husband, (laughs) they talk about their marriage. I know Ashley's life on a podcast. My children are going to (laughs) find this shit one day. (laughs) Oh God. And now this with the Loeb sisters and special thanks to Victoria, AKA Tori Loeb and Marina Loeb, who are amazing and amazing people. And we're so thankful that they we're willing to come on and be vulnerable as well and share about, you know, a, a really difficult time in life and, and laugh about it and cry about it. And, and, um, also just, it's such a beautiful tribute to the gorgeous relationship that you three have now. And, um, watching you guys live life is just, oh, it makes my heart just so happy. So thank you to all of you, the low, the incredible Loeb sisters who take over the world. <laughs> thanks for having us and um and uh, yes thank you to my sisters for coming on and uh, i apologize for my excessive use of liam neeson lines um the movie taken that's the movie liam neeson i have a special set of skills <laughs> if you didn't pick up on that that's what that was from i re-listened to it and it was just like Oh my God, people are going to just... I was like, she either really likes this movie or there's some underlying joke here <laughs> no, that like, not, I, we don't know of. <laughs> I, we we had been talking about it and we had been laughing about how, like what Peter would, you know, because Liam Neeson is the in the movie Taken. Liam, Liam, I can't believe. Anyway, Liam Neeson is the dad and he his daughter gets taken by these, you know, sex trafficker kidnappers. And he's like, I have a very special set of skills and I'm going to hunt you down and kill you and I will find you. And then he like fucking hunts them down and blah, 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 blah. blah. And it's this whole mess. And so we were sitting around laughing about what my dad's version would be <laughs> of that if we got kidnapped. I know. This is like real morbid, but we we were laughing about like what he would what he would say and like how that would go, and we had all sorts of like hilarious, you know, renditions. And so we had been talking about like I have a very special set of skills, none of which will be useful in retrieving you. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, I'm going to share too much detail about this conversation. 
Um, and it was just on and on. So we were doing that constantly and, and working it into every conversation. So that's so how good. I got so worked good. into it. Yeah. You've, you've got you've got to know Peter too. To, uh, <laughs> to kind of laugh at that. Or as Marina <laughs> likes to call him, Pilo. Pilo. Uh, yeah, Pilo. <laughs> that kind of Pilo. She, she does. She when she was emailing him, I was like, "Hey, can you send me this design real quick?" She's worked on a few things for Lion Rock. She's so talented, and and she's like, "Yeah, yeah, just make sure to run it by Pilo." And like, I fell off my chair. <laughs> Pilo, because well, like when you work with your parent, like it's you can't call them dad, right? So like that's weird. So you call them by their first name, which apparently weirds people out. Always has that I that I call them that. Like it always weirds people out. Which I, I'm like why um but she went a different route she changed the whole game she went pilo she went pilo full play i can't call him that because you know i'm not his daughter (laughs) but but it's a great starter i mean you probably could but (laughs) i don't think you'd care but it's like no no that that professional line i'm still like "Mm," but you're still my boss so (laughs) i'm probably gonna just you know keep it professional but anyways, we, <laughs> we digress. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode. And again, you can contact us anytime. Podcast at lionrock.life. Let us know. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Let us know what you thought of the Loeb sisters. Let us know what you are wanting out of this season. Contact us. We will contact you back. <laughs> we have a very special set of skills. <laughs> We will find you and we will respond to your email. <laughs> I'm going to pee. I can't. It's so good. When you watch that movie, you'll never forget that. I haven't ever seen it. So actually don't watch that movie. You will that that please don't watch that movie. Is it? No. It's, I'm too. Yeah, I'm too. Yeah. It's no, it's not. It's not appropriate for you. Okay. She knows <laughs> this no, podcast is appropriate for her and that movie. No, not- that movie will scar her. I do not want you watching that. I was going to say, she knows that there are certain things I'm no, not able to that watch. Movie, yeah, that movie will 100%. It was hard for me to watch. So, oh, then you do definitely not know that. I can't watch it. <laughs> yeah. There's always like preliminary questions I ask before I watch a movie. I'm like, does the child die? Does yeah. the dog die? Oh, yeah. Is there a good resolution? Is there torture? I can't watch any of those. I, I just, I can't. Yeah, you won't. Don't, 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 don't do won't. it. Don't do it. Yeah, don't, okay, don't no, do it. no, no, no. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, courage to changers. You like that? Courage oh, that's to changers. Good. I don't yeah. know. All right, everybody. We we are so grateful for your listenership, and yeah, uh, keep coming back. It works. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.